right, here we go. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Thanks for checking in to another episode of the podcast. Today's guest, we have BMX professional George Jovell. Uh, Jorge, as he likes to be called, George, what's happening? How are you? What's going on? Professional? I, I figured that was a lofty term I'll throw your way. It sounds sounds fancy, so might as well. But I know you used to be. I mean, you've been in the X Games for Pete's sake, so I'd say that's that's accurate. If you've been in the X Games... Professional or not, I know professional is kind of a loose term depending what sport you're in, but BMX, you own a bike, you made $30, you're professional as far as any BMXer is concerned, like here or there. So if you do a show for $12, you made money, you're pro as far as we're concerned. I know that's not the way it is in skateboarding, but anyway, before I go off on this tangent, how are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, Everything is in life is great right now. I got family staying with me, so I would say I am doing awesome. You look like you're doing awesome. You're a, you're a handsome gentleman right now, and you look you look well put together. I'm I'm over here. Uh, I'm we're on location in George's basement. It's a it's a beautifully furnished uh, downstairs basement. That might, yeah, I mean, I see the light you put in. That's lovely. You did a great job. The upgrade is really going to turn out for you. Pretty nice. But uh, so I'm excited. Thank you for for letting me come over and and kind of chatting with me a little bit. So uh, I know you were kind of being goofy with the whole professional thing but i mean you were really at one point in time i mean you were a full-time bmxer training just as you should as a pro bmxer you're chasing the lifestyle because when we met i'm trying to think was that 2003 or four i know we seem to talk about this every now and then i think it was 2005 2006 oh, i was think it, it was a year yeah just just before i moved because i remember that when um i got to woodward um, that you disappeared for a while. I think that's when you started picking up and started building a lot of, okay. a lot of. I'm assuming that's that's what it's why. But I remember seeing when you showed up. We hung out for a little bit. We rode. Never really spoke to each other. And then you disappeared for a while and you came back. Yeah. At a certain point. Okay. Yeah, that probably could have been when I was starting to get busy or whatever. But so I know we didn't really connect for right when you got to to the Pennsylvania area. But soon after that, we we connected. But I mean, even before that, you you were riding. Uh, shows and doing that kind of stuff. So I guess let's kind of backtrack. Let's start at the beginning and kind of work our way up to where we're at now. So uh, where are you from? Let's just kind of start there. Like let's start with the nuts and bolts of this whole thing. Where are you from? Uh, all that all that good stuff. And then what brought you out to, to Woodward and the, the Pennsylvania, the area? I mean, if you want to give us the 10 cent tour of, of George's life. The elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually grew up in the Bronx and Bronx, New York, New York. And I rode a BMX bike in um, a place called Malali Skate Park next to Yankee Stadium. Um, at the age of 19, 20, um, I met Kevin Robinson. Um, went to his skate park. I was doing shows in the area, setting up for those guys. I wasn't a professional. I wasn't doing shows myself. And met him. Around that time, he moved to Woodward. And he invited me to Woodward Camp as a visiting pro. So all these magical doors that um, kind of just seemed to open in my life, that was one of them. He brought me out here. And then from that point on, I would come here on weekends to Woodward. And uh, and then um, at a certain point, Point where most people were retiring from the action sports world, I was thinking I wanted to be in the X Games and do tour. And at 25, 26 years old, I quit a job in New York, moved out to Woodward Camp to Pennsylvania and started that journey, which was late in the game. I was already 26 years old. So most people are like old, retired. That is pretty late in the game as far as action sports is concerned. I know a lot of 
a lot of careers that's not old at all. That's even just starting, really. That's like just getting your motor going. But in action sports, skateboarding, BMX, snowboarding, all the all the these kind of sports, that is kind of well after a lot of the the seasoned vets, seasoned career guys are. Uh, that that would be considered up there, I guess. I mean, nowadays, now that I am well older than that, I'm like, oh, you were just a young pup. But I mean, back then, yeah, that it's. I guess it's it's hard. So, how was that starting the journey then, as opposed to a, hypothetically five, six, seven years earlier? So I'll say that the journey, that journey was started then. But I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. So. I was 14 years old when I started riding BMX, and I got good really fast. Um, and so, like I mentioned before, I seem to get all these all these magical doors always open. And maybe it's the way I approach life. I'm not sure if it's if it that's it, but I always feel like I'm really lucky in life with those things. So when I was um, when I was 19 years old, I got an opportunity to. Um, set up ramps for the specialized team. Um, they called Luis Perez, who was running Malali Skate Park at the time. I was working there that summer after I, high school had just finished. I just graduated from high school. And that was my summer job. And we were asked by Travis Chaperez to build ramps for the specialized team. They were coming to the East Coast. They were going to do shows in the Boston area, Rhode Island area. And so... Um, I just gotten my license to drive. I just bought my first car. Um, I was working in construction and working at Mulally Skate Park during the summer. So I was, I had made enough money to buy a car for $3,000. It was a Honda Accord. And during that time, we built portable wooden ramps for the specialized team. Um, on the day that the guy, whoever was picking up these ramps, he shows up. It happened to be an old rollerblader friend of mine. And he did not have a license to drive. He shows up with a box truck. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm here to pick up the ramps. He doesn't have a license. And he's like, yo, Georgie, yo, hey, um, you want to go on a road trip with me? And you can drive this truck and I'll pay you. Mind you, I just got my license at 19. New York City, public transportation, you don't really need to have a license. I just got mine. And I called my mom that what day. What a crazy coincidence, though. I mean, not a lot of people even have their license out in New York. And it, I'm they, from Boston myself, but same thing. They when don't, you live in a city, you don't need a license. When you have transportation like those cities have, what's the point? There's no reason. So what was the what, why, what was the push for you to get your license even? So for me, my, my reason— crazy coincidence, I mean. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, my my need for a license was always um, I wanted to. I've always wanted to. Most of the fam I have family in New York that has never left New York, has never left the Bronx, and so for me it was always a BMX thing. Um, BMX connects you to people from all over the country, all over the world. I met guys from New Jersey. They're always like, "Oh, come to Hackenstown Skate Hackenstown." Skate park or or Hackensack or go to uh, Lakewood Incline Club. Incline Club, yeah. Or even uh, what was the one past Lakewood? There was another one. Was that Hackenstown? Uh, Hackenstown was just yeah. past Lakewood yeah. from New York. From so, New York, yeah, that would probably be the one. Yeah. just past Lakewood. So the only way to get to any of these skate parks was to have a vehicle. You know, so I became that guy and my whole crew of friends that always had the car. I was the guy with the car. We we throw a bunch of bikes on the bike rack, destroy my my trunk of my car, and then pack like twenty guys in my car 
20 hood rats in my car and then drive out to, you know, Incline Club, to Hackensound, to to any skate park that was out of um, New York City. So that's how it... adventure, though. It was. And these were all, you know, any adventure you've ever been on, any road trip you've been on, you know that's the best part of BMX is hanging out with your friends, showing up at skate parks. You know, the moment before you get there, the shit talking in the car, and then when you leave, you go stop at a Wendy's somewhere and you just... You know, the, the crew I hung out with was just funny, always snapping on each other, always picking on each other. But so the guy shows up to pick up the ramp. He has no license. He asks me. And here I am. I go home, pick up all pick up my bags, my bike. I'm on the road. So our first trip is to Rhode Island and we set up the ramps and it's guys like um Aaron Cook, Alan Cook, um, you got Jeremy Feinberg, you got, and even because I was in his area, Kevin Robinson shows up. So you got all these guys. My first time doing this, and here I was around these professional, true professional riders, and right. that in my eyes, I'm just like, holy crap, these are the guys that I've seen on magazines. You know, this, I'm a guy from the Bronx, my first time out in these places, and I'm setting up the ranch for these guys. I brought my bike along, and I rode each show i wasn't being paid for them i was being paid to set up the ramps but from that me riding the shows came somebody like kevin robinson going like hey we're going to my skate park afterwards you want to come over with us you know and then so i go there my first time at kevin's skate park i hit the ce- there was a quarter pipe after a box jump i hit the ceiling after this box jump and then fell straight to the like the middle of the tranny and broke through the transition whoa and yeah. i know that quarter well that was my local skate park so I know that I know that I, know, I I actually ruptured my spleen at that skate park on Kevin's birthday one year. So I know that skate park, and that's a big quarter, and that's a high ceiling. So you must have been blasting. I blasted, and that was my thing. I was always the guy that used to pedal as fast as possible, blast, and either gonna I was gonna land flat or I was gonna case the crap out of out of a quarter <laughs> pipe. And that was one of those moments where I, you know, I I didn't expect to hit the ceiling. It just kind of caught me off guard. And so, like, something hit me, you know, and I'm like, whoa. So I freaked out. And then here I am bailing off my bike. I land, and my knee hits the ramp, and whatever was under it, whatever 2 by 4 was holding that up, whatever the, the ribbing system that was on that broke through. So then um, um, I think his name was Jeremy Pellicchini. He was a rollerblader that opened the skate park up with Kevin. Great memory because that was his name. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I remember him because we would stay at his sister's house. Um, cause I, I, once I, the rollerblader that I knew, she was a rollerblader. Mm-hmm. So when we showed up to Rhode Island, he's like, Hey, we're staying at this person's home. And that's how I met the whole family and everything. So anyway, I, I crashed through the ramp. Jeremy tells Kevin, Kevin walks in. He's like, who did that? You know, he's Kevin Robinson. You know, he was, he was a scary guy, although he was the nicest guy. Yeah. So he was, he walks up to me. He's just like, did you break this through this ramp? And I go, here I am nervous. I'm just meeting all these people. He just invited me to the, to go to the skate park. And I'm like, yeah, I did. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm like freaking out. And he's like, he shakes my hand and hugs me. And he's like, that's fucking unbelievable. I can't believe you did. And from that point on, <laughs> I was in his radar, you know? So then shortly after that, he moved out to, um, Woodward camp. And so he, he told me, he's like, if you ever want to come out to Woodward, um, I'll be more than happy to help you get there and ride. And he, he was the reason I showed up there in the first place. He taught me how to do my first backflip and I went home and um, was able to do shows for a company called Hell on Wheels um, just shortly after. And and so 
I was able to do shows for this company, Hell on Wheels, out of New Jersey, out of Incline Club. Um, that was by Incline Club. That was part of the the whole that whole group of people that um, the the same guys that that rode the skate park did shows for him as well. And that's how I met Scotty and all those guys. But Kevin taking me to Woodward my first time allowed me to learn to see what being a professional looked like. And I went back home and I did BMX shows for Hell on Wheels. And I unfortunately became a show rider. Well, that's only unfortunate on your in your aspect. Because – and that's what I was going to get at. That's why I made sure I emphasized that because for, for me – I didn't realize that when you mentioned earlier professional BMXer, to me a professional BMXer was the guys in X Games. To me a professional BMXer was the guys doing the um, – back in the day it was the um, the, the Vans tri- um, what were it? Vans triple, triple crowns. Yeah. You know, those were professional. I didn't realize that I was a professional. I was, I was doing shows. I, I was performing in front of hundreds of thousands of people all summer long, traveling from state to state to town. And that was being – I was making a living, a full-time living. As a matter of fact, when I started doing shows for um, Hell on Wheels, they ju- they were just picked up by Mongoose. Um, and that's where uh, Travis Chaperis comes in because it, he was a marketing director for them. So they just got picked up by Mongoose. And all of a sudden, I was signing a $20,000 a year contract with Hell on Wheels and Mongoose, and I was being paid $175 per show. Wow. So I'm going from- You got from, salary plus, you got a show rate. It was the craziest thing. And it, it came from nowhere. Like, I didn't expect it. I just, you know, I heard about this guy in New Jersey that needed a guy that can do backflips. I just returned back from Woodward. It feels like it all happened, like, within the same hour, you know? Yeah. And here I was traveling, like, signing a contract- my first time, and I was a professional making money, stickers on the helmet, speed stick stickers, and the whole nine. Weird. But again, I wasn't a professional in my head because I wasn't competing in X Games and all of these big competitions. Isn't it funny how your perception and it just changes and you think this one thing, but reality sets in later in life and you realize that you had it wrong that whole time. And it's funny how, how many people I've talked to that were great BMXers, great riders, but they were standoffish with doing shows because they felt they weren't able to, to, I guess, hit their true potential as far as doing, doing contests and stuff like that. If they went and did shows specifically or not even specifically, but did shows. And then you kind of have to, I guess, proverbial, proverbially, Talk them off a ledge and say shows are where it's at. A contest, you're putting your you're putting your butt on the line for a potential podium placing and potential winning of money. Whereas a show, you can go out there. I mean, obviously dumbed down a little bit. You can just fart around and you won the contest. Like it, you win no matter what. Whether you put a foot down, whether you crash, whether you mess up, or whether you have the craziest tricks of the day. Like everyone's on the same level, everyone gets the same money, but because the contest thing is just held on such a high pedestal for a lot of people, same as you, they kind of associate the contest with being a pro. Whereas a show rider, I know a lot of show riders that don't do contests at all. They strictly do shows and they make a lot more money than some of the pros out there right now. I mean, now, I mean, it's... Whatever that, I I guess, but yeah, it's uh, 
it's it's just so interesting how your perception is is just skewed from what the magazines tell you you're supposed to do because there's not a lot of coverage for show riders, and maybe that's what it is. If you're doing show riding, you're not as likely to get into magazines and be that that famous pro, whereas the show the the contest riders are the guys in the magazines and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's exactly how I saw it. And, um, and how I felt when I, I did, I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I just saw it as a job. I just show up, I set up ramps, I ride. And, but I, I, now that I look back, I realize how many, like my, my first time, what got me really excited about BMX was when the, um, the GT was an air show yeah. showed up at a skate park, at a bicycle shop in, um, it was Castle Hill, uh, bike shop in the Bronx. And I saw these guys, I saw John Parker, I saw Rob Nolly doing five forties over each other. And Rob Nolly tail whips was my first time being exposed to a Rob Nolly tail whip, which every time somebody lands halfway with their foot in the frame, you're like, Rob Nolly, you know, it's like, but it, it was like the first time I was exposed. And, and I realized as I got older, like now, especially that what I was doing back then is you're you're touching like you are closer to helping a a kid start a BMX path when you're doing shows because they could they can connect with you. They talk to you right after the show. They're like, "Hey man, can I have your autograph?" And all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, I really want to ride BMX." And you start asking questions. A lot of professionals that we see, the magazine guys, these kids will never get to talk to those guys. Right. So we are the we're like the bridge between. Wow, I wish I was a professional rider or just a rider. Just I just want to do tricks on a bike. To this person becoming years later, being a professional or just being a really good rider. Because we use the, the word professional when somebody is getting paid or or really good. You know. Um, so I I see now that the show thing growing up was actually more impactful than these guys you see on in the magazines i i can't associate with that guy i don't know him i've never had I've, as a matter of fact when i met some of my heroes i realized like that's not a person i would hang out with right yeah you know yeah so so i see it now but back then i didn't i wanted to be a professional in the x games and unfortunately in 2002 i broke my scaphoid um i went back to i quit riding bikes for a year and I kind of gave up on BMX. I was 22 years old. I was old, you know, real, I was old. real old, real old <laughs> for BMX. I thought that it was over, and I realized that um, I had to go back to work. So I just I got a bunch of odd jobs, and you know, 23 came around. Um, scaphoid, the scaphoid bone. If you if you don't know, it's a little bone in your wrist that's the size of a peanut. If you break it, you may need surgery you may not um i was one of those few that needed surgery um so it took about six months for it to completely heal after getting the the final surgery on it i got a bone graft from my hip to my wrist but psychologically it kind of messed me up i was just like i don't want to do that ever again that sucked that was a year of my life i'm never going to get back so i decided i was going to quit just like that cold turkey just quit riding bikes took my bike took it apart threw it under the bed and so um 
as I was finding my myself again, like in in my personal world outside of the BMX world, um, I had a buddy who uh, became a building manager, and he wanted to start like a small construction business, uh, renovating apartments and fixing, you know, like leaks in the ceilings and stuff like that. So he offered me work, and so I didn't have a car because I was broke, and I decided to take my bike out of the the under the bed and I put it back together and started riding my bike to to his place to pick up the work van and and then pick up the other workers you know I had a crew of like five people working we'd show up at different apartments fix their you know whether it's towels in the bathroom change sinks that kind of stuff like stuff just kind of fix their upper stuff so I did that for a while and then all of a sudden you know started doing wheelies and manuals and it it all came back and the you know and and the bug, the itch came back to like want to go to the skate park and went back to the skate park and it all came back so quickly. And all of a sudden I was like, I want to do shows again. Started doing shows again. And, but every season after every season of shows, I would look for a, a winter job. So quit my construction job, did shows all summer long. Winter came. I got a job as a delivery guy for a company in New York called Selecto. And within six months, I was a supervisor. And like I said, all these magical doors always open and I was making great money. They give you a vehicle, no reason to even continue BMX. Now at this point, I'm you know 24 years old, um, 24, 25. And, um, I met my wife yeah, at the time. She was my girlfriend. Tw- I was at the age of 24 and I was always whining and crying to her. I'm like, man, I really wish I would have made it. She's like, made, made what? And I'm like, I wish I would have gone to the X Games and gone to do tour and done these things. And she's like, well, what's what's stopping you? And I go, well, I'm, you know, I got a good job now. Like, what's the point of even trying to do it? Like, in my mind, a professional lives at Woodward Camp because that's what I saw. Kevin Robinson, Jamie Beswick, um, you know, Dave Mir, like all these people would come to Woodward too. And that was what I saw from my perspective of what a professional rider did, where they went, what, how they got to where they were supposed to go. And so she was the one that said, well, why don't you quit your job and move to Woodward if that's what you feel is going to get you where you want to be. And I said, uh, it's just, you know, it's so irresponsible. You know, I'm old now. <laughs> you had that you had that good demon, bad demon sitting on your shoulders trying one's chirping in your ear and the other one's trying to talk you out of it. One's trying to get you get you to come out to Woodward and the other is trying to turn you away. So that's that's interesting that you kind of you were old enough to to try to be responsible but young enough to still want to chase it and and do what you wanted to do. Yep, absolutely. It, it and it, I think if I can go back in time um, and slap myself in the face a few times, I realize over my lifetime that um, I've always had great opportunities and I've always been the first person to destroy those opportunities by the way I think. So I've learned a lot and I've changed the way I think now, you know, where everything is an opportunity. And when I catch myself trying to self-sabotage, I quickly vi- see it and I cut it out. I'm like, nope, don't do that again. Even now in my career now, I do that still. Um, but she's the one that convinced me. And so I, one weekend I went to, um, I went to 
Woodward for a weekend getaway thing. And I spoke to, at the time, oh man, he was a rollerblader at Woodward. He was actually the guy that would- Bob Lewis? Bob Lewis. I spoke to Bob because he was my contact um, whenever I would come to Woodward. And I said, hey, listen, I'm thinking about moving out to State College. If I did, would you, would it be okay to ride Woodward? And so he's like, yeah, dude, absolutely. Come do it. Um, I'm like, wow, that was easy, you know? Yeah. Just like that. No roadblocks. No roadblocks. Just went for it. So I grab all my stuff on the weekend, pack my uh, a van, and then drive to Woodward. Drive to State College and um, move in with Brian Cunningham, my roommate at the time. He became my roommate. And uh, That's for another podcast. We, we'll talk about that one later. Podcast. Yeah. And so here I am, you know, like week is starting out. Everybody's like, hey, we're going to Woodward to go ride. And so I'm like, hey, Bob, I'm going to go in to ride. He's like, oh, no, dude, you can't ride. And I go, what do you mean? I, I thought we, you know, I just moved out of here. He's like, no, no, it's, you know, it, Woodward's packed. You can't just come in and ride whenever you think you you can just come in and ride. And I go, well, that was the whole reason I moved here. Like, that was the conversation we had. And unfortunately, Bob was going through something in his life where he was transitioning out of Woodward. Um, and I think his 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 way of seeing things was different because he quit shortly after that conversation. So here I was. I spent a week out in State College. I didn't go to camp. And I'm like, I, I just moved everything to be here. Um, I can't just let this go. So I drive to Woodward and I go into the office and I say, hey, can I speak to Gary Reem? I had never spoken to Gary Reem before that moment. Never. I had no idea who Gary was. He was the owner of Woodward Camp and I never met Gary. I never had a conversation with him. And if you know Gary Reem and you're in his presence, uh, there's a lot of fear that comes with it. He is one of the more intimidating present characters you could you could cross paths with for sure. Yep, absolutely. And so he walks out. He's like, hey, how's it going? How, how can I help you out? You know, and I go, hey, Gary, you don't know me. Um, I came here. You know, I pretty much told him like a quick little elevator pitch of my life at Woodward and what I was there to do. And he's like, well, sorry, I can't help you. Just I just can't do that. So I go home. I'm like, okay, I'm planning my return back to the Bronx because I'm just like, I can't believe I just moved out here. Like, how stupid was I? Like, did I really just move out to the to to State College, PA, and I, it's I'm, I'm going back home now? You know, They're just like that. It's and um, the great thing about it is that I had th- during the years of coming to Woodward, I met Maverick, Steve Hawes. He gives me a call. He goes, Hey, what's going on? And I go. This is what happened. I explained the story. And Steve is like, from this point on, call me. You're more than welcome to come into Woodward. I had a conversation with Gary. I fixed everything. And that was it. Bingo. Bingo. Steve Haas. Steve Haas. The Maverick coming to, coming to save the day again, once again, for somebody else. It's so funny how, how some of these, these characters like Kevin Robinson, Steve Haas, like just keep popping up in people's stories. Uh, because they really were such great, like emanating presence of people, like just great humans, good humans out to change the world for the better. And it's so funny. I was just talking to Steve uh, kind of recently because I want him on on here as well. I want to talk to him for a little while. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of this crazy virus stuff going on where everyone's kind of locked down. So he would like to uh, 
to wait until it's all over, which which is it's perfect. Uh, but and I like to be more personal. Uh, so the doing the phone thing, I like to be a little bit more like present because we can kind of feed off each other a little bit more. And he's such a goofy character. I just like hanging out with him anyway. So he's gonna be a lot of fun. But he's he's one of those people. And he say I have a. My story is different, but he was the reason I came out to Woodward and was able to make that connection and all that as well. So Steve kind of is the reason I'm out here and more or less who I am as well. So that's awesome. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry, but go go ahead. No, no, not at all. I like I like to hear everybody's story about how Steve has an, had a has had an impact on them because I think you know we see Steve or we use most people see Steve when they would come to Woodward and they just see him as you know, a lot of times think like oh there he's an angry guy he's not Steve is not he's just unfortunately when you're in a position like Steve you get 2500 texts a day to ask if you can come ride Woodward camp and i think those people tend to become a um what can i even how can i even explain them like you know like they're human first they're not just your ticket to get into Woodward Camp. And so I think every one of us has experienced at some point people that are like, hey, can I come ride? Can I bring my friends? Can I do this? And and guys like Steve have to kind of take a step back and separate themselves from, from people because they're being utilized to try to – Take advantage of almost uh, to an extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a point. There was a big joke where people would call my house uh, the Jovel Protel because when Dew Tour was hot, a lot of the young the young up and coming riders would stay at my house to come ride Woodward. You know, they would always call me, like, "Hey, I'm coming to Woodward. Can I stay at your place?" And I go, "Yeah, I would invite everybody to come stay at my place." And there were times where they were like, you know, like like fifteen guys staying eating my food, staying on my couch and 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 those guys went on to be some of some some bigger names and some kind of, you know made did well at the beginning and then just kind of disappeared. But um but I feel like, you know, you become that, uh whether you want to or not, because if you're a nice guy, people tend to want to utilize you, take advantage of it and it's just it's not their fault. They're just trying to do something and you're you're their door. And so I realized growing up that I always had these people in my life who helped me out. So I'm always like, yep, not a problem. I'll help you. What do you need? Um, but yeah, Steve is one of those guys. But I'll just keep going with the whole pro thing. Um, Woodward Camp, here we are. It was a great, great sessions with people. I got to know you and a bunch of other guys. Um, and you get to the learning curve went from I can barely do a bar spin to – I'm on a vert ramp doing, you know, a bar spin to bar spin about 10, you know, eight, 10 feet out. And, oh, I'm going to do a flare after. Like, it's so crazy. to I never expected to get to that level of riding. And all of a sudden, I was competing at do tours and I was at X Games. And even when I was at X Games, I didn't see myself as a professional BMXer. I just saw myself as a guy that snuck his way up there. And it was always one of those things like, why can't I just believe in it? But that's, that's kind of how it got. Like, you know, you, you're there and it's not until I see it now that I'm like, holy crap, I made it. Like I was there. I competed these events. And unfortunately around the, around the time where it all came true when when i was really doing it and i was 
you know, you know, I was riding for hyper bikes and they were hooking me up with bikes. And even that summer, like clay from hyper bikes paid for all my trips, including China. He, he sent me out to the, to back when X games was in China. He sent me out to every contest that summer. And even that my, all of my, my trips paid for by hyper bikes. I still didn't realize that I was a professional BMXer. It's so crazy. And I still can't believe that. Now that I see it, I'm like, wow, why didn't I just see it for myself? So, but unfortunately during that time, I was already transitioning into something else in my life and I, I went back to school. That that was pretty awesome. I do remember you, you starting to go back to school, but do you remember when, even if it was after you stopped, I mean, stopped competing and stuff, do you remember when you kind of made that realization that I I did make it? I did exactly what I set out to. Do you remember having that thought? Like popping your head, what like why didn't I think of this earlier? Why wasn't it clear to me? Like, do you remember having that thought? I I had the so I had the thought when my friends that I grew up with were sending me screenshots of, you know, how your name pops up on stats and stuff and they were just like, My man George, he's on you know, X Games and they were so inspired because those are the guys I grew up with in the Bronx and friends of mine who we we had a little crew and they went on to go to Columbia University and become engineers in their life and they're professionals in their life. But they were sending me pictures because to them I accomplished the dream they had. They became engineers because they had to. They go back to school. Most people become responsible in their ways. And they you know, I've got friends who are super smart who, you know, had the same dreams. And I just was one of those guys that I just couldn't give it up, you know. But even, like I said, I think that's when I realized it. When people were sending me screenshots or like, hey, man, I saw you. I saw you running X Games. You did really well. Because in my mind, I'm like, I didn't do top five. I don't belong there, you know. And they were like, you killed it. I just want to, you know, you really inspired me to try to, you know, to try to become this or become that. Or you've inspired me to um, get back on my bike again. Or you've inspired me to. And then I started realizing like, man, maybe... Maybe I did do okay, you know, but it's just crazy. It's like you never realize that, I, I guess, because you're so busy doing it and, and kind of beating yourself up about it. Um, for me, it was I quit my job. I left my family in New York at a late time. And I gave myself a few years and I said, if you are not at X Games or at this by this time, you're pretty much undeserving of this. So I, I picked on myself a lot. Like I was just like always bullying myself. So when I didn't get to a certain point at a certain age, I usually, I used to use age as a timeline of where success or where this is. And, and that was it. I was too busy looking at all the negative things that I wasn't doing to look at all the great things. Like the people I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've met some amazing people. I've traveled all over the world, sometimes with not a dime in my pocket because of the people I've met through BMX, the humans I've met who are like, hey, dude, I got my company to fly you out to, you know, the Czech Republic. And then I know Alessandro Barbero is one of those guys. He was in Italy. He's like, you're in Europe? Didn't call me? He got Oakley to buy me a ticket to go out to Oakley. All of a sudden, he was putting euros in my hand and going, you're doing shows with us this week. Amazing stories traveling the world, riding a bike, 
but the whole time I've always like, it's like I was picking on myself. Like you're not, you're not a professional dude. You're not, you don't belong here with these guys. You're just not top five or you're just not making a living from this. Or like, it's so weird, you know? And I, I'm glad I'm able to look at that now. And uh, I don't apply it to what I do for a living now. I like, I have a lot of confidence in myself and what I do. And I work really hard to, you know, to do the work I do. But I will say that's kind of my, my, my process, my, my thinking process during those years. Would you say you're not able to live in the moment, I guess, and kind of see where you're at because you're always striving and looking ahead and looking at the looking forward to what the next goal is maybe. So because you're always looking ahead, you're not able to kind of look down where your feet are planted and say, well, I'm here now. Like I'm, do you, do you feel that way? Do you feel that's, that's accurate? You're looking ahead. So you can't concentrate where you're at right then. I will say that that's, that's always been my thing looking. I look, I try to look ahead so far and visualize what I want that when I've been there, I'm thinking of the next like three years, four years. So I've learned, you know, through that to enjoy the moment more. Um, and I have, I mean, we, we've all been out there. We've, we've traveled, had a great time and done all kinds of fun stuff. But I will say that when it came to that, um, even now I look back and I'm like, man, you, you did it. Like you, you did exactly what you set out to do. Don't, be so hard on yourself because most people that you know that you grew up with didn't do it. They got girlfriends, cars, and stopped riding bikes, and you continue to outlive every generation that you rode with throughout the years, you know? And for me, and even now, like, you know, 40 years old, still love riding my bike. I was Are just you telling 40? You, yeah, 40 years old, bro. When did that happen? I don't know. I just woke up Holy one day and smokes. I was 40. Isn't that it's, crazy how it, it works? Yeah, it's it's just, sneaking up on all of us. I'm not far behind you, but I didn't realize you hit the pinnacle already. So congratulations. Happy, I, happy birthday. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think, did you go to my half halfway to 40 celebration this summer that Lynn threw? I did. You did? I was very surprised about that. That was, that was kind of cool. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to add to is like a big, a big, the biggest cheerleader in that whole journey from... 24 deciding to move out to Woodward at 26 and trying to, it was Lynn. Anytime I was ever down, Lynn's my wife, by the way. Um, she was the one that was like, you're going to get the hell up and you're going to go do it. And you're going to shut up, you know? And she was always the one that was like, you know, um, pushing me and helping me through the whole process. She was the person that when I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. She was like, and even now with, my my what i do now for a living she's the same way she's always like whenever i'm like i don't know if i'm man this is so tough like there's times where you just want to quit it's just like you're gonna get up you're gonna do what you have to do and you're gonna make it happen so shut up and stop crying about it so she's willing you into reality she is the one willing me into reality and i think if if she wasn't in my life i would never have even been sitting on a deck at x games listening to my name being called and dropping in for one of the best runs I ever had in how, my life. How surreal was that? Like, let's let's go back to that moment where you were on the deck about to take your first run in X Games. The thing you'd been striving for and achieving, like, and aiming to do, like, that is the pinnacle. Like, that's 
are Super Bowl. So for people, X Games is a pretty household, pretty well known household name at this point. But for those people that have been living under rocks, X Games is the Super Bowl for action sports like snowboarding, BMX, skateboarding. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. But uh, but that's our pinnacle. That's our Super Bowl. That's what we strive for. When you start out, it's if you're trying to make it, like you said, that is. That is making it. So, what was that like? Being on the deck in George's head. What were you thinking? Were you were you in the moment then? I'd have to assume you were like planning your runs out, staring at the crowd, staring at the TV cameras, being like, "Golly, here I." So, this is what this is like. All right, what what bring us to that moment? So, the funny thing about that is that I was already in school. I woke up that morning, and I had homework to send out. And I was, uh, I sent out my homework for school and I go to the, to the stadium where we're competing. And, um, the great thing is that I, we have been doing due tours. So I, you know, like I knew everybody at this point, we're all friends, homies, every hanging out, you know, back then it was, um, Austin Coleman, Simon Tabron, Jamie Bestwick, Chad Kagey, all on the deck. And, um, everybody's always like, you got this, you got this. You know how it is. Like we're all, we all know each other because we ride together all the time. Um, and although we're there to compete, um, kind of against each other, you're there to compete against yourself. But it was at that moment for the first time in all of the years of trying to, um, ride and put so much pressure. I had no pressure whatsoever because, it was it was bittersweet because here I was. I worked so hard so many years to get to this point. But my new attention was in school. And so I had nothing to prove to anyone. And I rode the best I ever rode. Um, unfortunately, it was best out of three. And so I, I had one really great run and two kind of sucky runs. But if I had landed the same exact stuff I landed in my my really good run and added what I wanted to, I would have made it to because back then it was like it was like prelims, finals, super finals, double super. It was like the craziest thing. There's so many steps. It's not just like the contest and then it's over. no, There's no like multiple contests. They really wear contest. you out. Yeah, they really wear you out. So it was it was surreal because he were you know like you're at X Games, you made it. Um, and I had nothing to prove to anyone. I was just there and all I had to do was ride and I rode with a big smile on my face. And the thing that always replays in my mind is that Kevin Robinson was announcing because during that time, Kevin had already retired. Um, and so I always hear his voice saying all these great things about me and Kevin was the guy that helped me get there in the first place he's the guy that opened that door in 1999-2000 and here we were it was like 2010-2011 and Kevin was announcing kind of that pinnacle in my life in action sports and so for me, that was the most important part of that. Like Kevin Robinson, the guy who got me there, he's on, he's on, you know, he's doing the commentator, 
stuff. And when I hear it, when I see it now, it's like he's talking all he's saying all these nice things about me. And um, here he was. He was the guy that set me up. He's the guy that hooked me up and put me out there. And he was the main guy that was on the deck every time hugging, you know, and lifting, uplifting everyone and making sure that you felt like you were at home no matter what. So I think that's what I remember the most about that. The fact that Kevin was announcing and that he was the one that was kind of up there coaching. And he does that right now with, you know, you know, everybody that knew Kevin still, even I talked to Michael sometimes and he's still like, Kevin did this or Kevin did that. And he was always the guy that was coaching him throughout life and explaining how, how the rules went, the um, politics of, of the world of BMX. And he was that mentor for a lot of people. Mm hmm. And it's funny because I'm having the conversation. I almost forgot, you know, that Kevin wasn't around. He's not there anymore. <laughs> because I, I think about Kevin all the time. Like, all he's time. just here. He's still here, you know. So it's just, uh, I just caught myself like, yeah, Kevin does this. I'm like, he's gone. But, you know, he's not. But not forgotten. No. Like, he'll 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 forever live on in all our stories and thoughts yeah. and everything. Because there are so many of us. Like, I, I, I mean, we just mentioned a couple minutes ago. He's been one of that. He's that guy for so many people that just helped get to that that point just he helped you in such a big way and he has i mean a, a lot of people have that story so many people have that story of yeah kevin helped me get to this point or helped me get to this contest or or i wasn't invited to this contest but he made sure i was able to come and compete and this and that and he was such a big presence in bmx and such a good person that He'll forever live on in oh, our yeah. stories and, and everything. So, um, yeah, he's – it's definitely – you said that and I was just like going right back to some of our stories with him and it's just like, wow, what a great person. But, uh, yeah, it's – I think uh, I think you were just – there was no pressure because you were just there for the fun. You were, you were having fun. You weren't – there was no pressure on you because you knew what the next step was. So there was no pressure like you said. So you were able to have that terrific – run there's nothing that you can go back and say i wish i did this i wish i did that it's just the way the cards were dealt that day that's just what happened but you did it you made it you made it so i mean that's that's awesome so you were going to school so i guess um so you said you were going to school and i mean obviously i know what you do now but let's kind of bring bring you up to speed so you so did you was that your last were you only at x games the one time or were you did you get to go twice i can't remember no no uh the following year so when i was in school um uh the it was a two-year program it was a graphic design program and it was ex extensive um and so the second year i had to do an internship so when i went back to school i there was no possible way that I could ride enough hours in a week to be able to be good enough to go. So unfortunately, um, I kind of disappeared for like two, two, three years there. It went there was from, a long time where it was just like, where is George? George disappeared. Um, George was busy going to school. George was busy uh, doing part-time jobs to pay for school and to pay for, you know, rent and bills and, um, even when April would call me and, or text me or email and say, um, Hey George, you know, are you going to be part of this year's, um, Asian X games? Or are you going to be part of this year's X games? And I would just go, I'm so sorry, April. I, um, 
I just, I'm not writing enough to be good enough to go to this. And I, my attention was set on the next step in my life, which was go to school, finish school, build a business and so on. You know, I didn't want to waste too much time, um, trying to, I feel like a lot of people, um, hold on to like I ride BMX even now, but a lot of people hold on to it. Like, you know, I don't, I didn't want to be 40 years old, still trying to compete, still trying to make a living from it. And I knew that I had to put a lot of my attention on other things. So, um, unfortunately that's, that's kind of what happened. I didn't go to the next one. Um, I did end up going to, um, 20, what was the last Asian X games? I can't remember. Or Asian action sports or that extreme. I think I went to that. Um, because then I, for two or three years, I kind of disappeared. And then I, I started riding again. Um, cause Jamie kind of was like, Hey, you want to ride with me? Cause you know, Jamie needed a, like kind of needed a vert partner. Like, it's hard to get anyone on, on the vert ramp. Motivation and, for a vert ramp. You have to be on your game for you, something like that. That's a serious ramp. You don't just play around on that. Yeah. Vert requires a lot of motivation, dedication, time, effort. Um, at the beginning, it's scary. Once you lose that fear, it's about the technique, getting used to landing smooth, and then adding tricks in between. A lot of hours go into it. Like anything, any you know, a box jump, everything is great, but you can land a little bit halfway down the box jump and be fine. A vert ramp, you have to hear that coping on the way up and almost hear the coping on the way down to to keep that air. And so, but it requires a lot of time. And Jamie is one of those people that's super, super dedicated to it. Um, so he's he's been he's actually been a the person that's always brought me back to it. Um, because he's like, Hey, let's go ride. And I'm like, Jamie, I don't know. And he, and all of a sudden I'm riding vert with him and it all comes back and I get excited. And he's just like, you know, he sees me doing something in the phone pit and he's like, throw it to the resin. I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I'm not. And all of a sudden I'm competing and it's all because Jamie kind of made me believe. And then here I am. Like, you know, the last time I went to, it was an egg, I think it was a extreme, whatever they called it. It wasn't ex, uh, Asian excellence anymore, but it was the same people running it. And uh, here I was riding at the top of my level again at, you know, 34 years old at this contest. And it kind of all came because Jamie pushed me to ride because when he rides with you, you're going to learn some stuff. He's trying to get better. He wants to make sure you're getting better at it. So um, so I would say I took a three-year hiatus and then rode for a little bit and it's been on and off. And as you know, now these days you can barely get a session in. Right. Yeah. It's a, the, the motivation is hard when, I mean, whether, whether you want to or not, life is gonna, is gonna come knocking and say, Hey, you got, you gotta come over here and fix, fix these gutters or, or whatever your house needs work or, or something. You can't, you don't have time to ride bikes today. So, I mean, it's a fact of life. It's just, it's, you have to, you have to step up sooner or later and kind of, uh, I guess realize that you need to start being more responsible and, BMX, I mean, even if it is your job, it's sometimes when it's not your job and you're just doing it for fun, it's kind of hard to to get away from the couple things that are your job and, and kind of allowing you to, to have the life that you have. You can't just go away and, and go have fun anymore. And it's kind of, it's, uh, I mean, it's the times that were as nice as they were. It's, uh, it, they're, they're not the way that way anymore. 
So, uh, yeah. So I guess uh, let's bring bring everyone up to speed. So what what are you doing now? You you finished school. I was actually at your graduation with Jamie. We had the time of our lives in the back of that in the back of that auditorium watching you. <laughs> watching you graduate and we were just giggling and having a ball back there just making jokes and being silly and uh so it was it was awesome i i'm excited i was actually able to be there for that i mean granted we only went just for that we weren't able to like hang out and celebrate with you guys or anything but it was awesome i i went and helped celebrate in that little way uh you succeeding uh what you what you strived out for so what you do now you you kind of made it to the level you were aspiring in a and trying to attain to get to, then you're there now. So you own a successful business. What are you What are you doing now? What are you working on? How did you get here? And I guess, I don't know if we even mentioned it, what are you doing now? Yeah, it's a lot uh, that happened in the last 10 years. That's a loaded question, I know. It is. Um, and the, the crazy thing about it, um, and I'll use BMX one more time, whenever I am down... Whenever things are tough, whenever uh, my confidence drops in what I do for a living now, I go ride my bike for a few hours and it all comes back and it all goes away. Um, and that's where BMX still is part of it. It's my It's everybody's therapy, all of us. Um, but what I do now is I own um, a video production business. And it's kind of all over the place because I went to school for graphic design. And so people know me as like, hey, can you design me a website? Can you design a logo? Can you do this? Um, but during the time that I was riding BMX, I always had a camera in my hand, whether it was a video camera or a photo camera. And then when DSLRs became a video and photo, then that was the transition to that. I always had one around my neck. I was always filming my friends doing something. Um, I was always putting together videos for friends and just helping them Um Get sponsors, you know, sponsor me videos. I remember I did a bunch of videos for 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 uh, baby Keith, uh, little Keith. You know, he was always like, you know, I'm like, hey, let's, you know, and that was my practice. It was just always constantly filming stuff and learning ways to to record something to make it look cool. Whether it was using sliders, and then I I got into the drone world and got into all this stuff. But uh, my business pretty much provides. Um, Video production for corporate businesses. Um, I locally work for Sheets. They're one of my clients. And that's a relationship that has been built over the last three and a half years. Um, thanks to Andy Alvarez, who's a BMXer, I got an opportunity to work for Adidas. And now now I've got a three-year relationship with, with that company as a client. And even then, like I just mentioned if anyone here knows Sheets, they know they're a huge company. And Adidas is a global company, and they're hiring me to go out and shoot videos for them. Um, and it blows my mind. There's times where I feel like that guy on the deck of the vert ramp at X Games going like, do I really belong here? Am I the real deal? And these days, I just see it as, you damn right, I'm the real deal. That's why I'm here doing it. I'm getting paid to do it. Um, but it took it took a lot of work to get there. It took a lot of years. And I work with, you know, right out of school, I did an internship during the summer at an agency in town. And then I went and worked for um, WPSU and State College. They do videos for Penn State University. They do um the Penn State football story or Unrivaled, um, which is documentary style marketing videos for football, for basketball, men's and women's basketball. 
And during that time, a guy by the name of uh, that you just interviewed, Don Hampton, he was one of those people that was my mentor. He was uh, my Kevin Robinson in the video production world, you know. And he told me that you called him White Devil, <laughs> El Diablo Blanco. Um, yeah, we, we would travel whenever we would travel to shoot. Um, we would go to restaurants and if it was like a Spanish restaurant, he would always ask the waiter, Hey, my buddy here just called me El Diablo Blanco. What does that mean? And, and the waiter would always kind of look at me and give me a smirk and go, my friend, he called you the white, the white devil, you know? And then we just (laughs) laugh and, you know, the waiter gets really uncomfortable, but you know, Don Don and I worked together for a while. I was able to work for companies like um, Cannondale through him. Um, I was able to work for companies like Stan's No Tubes through him. Um, I was able to learn about the industry um, because when I first started doing this, I was kind of blind about what you do. Um, and so he exposed me to a lot of these different ways of working um at wpsu he was producing shows he was a producer and his role as a producer was to put together a team of people to complete these projects that were due every single week um and what i you know he would give me opportunities he's he's the one that put me out there my first time he's like hey can you go shoot this can you go travel with uh coach chambers can you go um can you go with um, Coach James Franklin, who magically, I don't know how, we, him and I built a really good relationship on a trip to his alma mater. He was going to go give a speech, and he rode BMX at one point. It would be nice to ask him about You that. are kidding me. No. We were on a, we were on a plane. To, we were on a, on a private plane together. His assistant coach says – Hey, you ever seen George's knees? Because I have no ACL, so my knees shift. And coach is like, I'm not looking at your knees, man. I rode BMX. I know what that's like. And I'm like, you rode BMX? He's like, yeah. I got the I got the scars to prove it. And I'm like, I'm like, coach, I'm sorry. What do you know about BMX? He's like, you ever watch the movie Rad? And I go, you know the movie Rad? He's like, yeah. Are you kidding me? And he mentioned, he's like, guy does the moonwalk. You know, back then with the backflip in the movie was called moonwalk. And I'm like what he's like yeah i raced when i was younger and it was short-lived for him but he's like i got the scars to prove it if you want to see them and then from that point on we would just you know message each other text each other and i was always like um my last year at wpsu i was always like the guy that they would send to interview him because this this moment on this plane and this conversation opened the doors um i am not a football person i don't follow football I live in a town that is a huge football town. Eats, lives, and breathes football. And there was no connection for me with this guy. I just saw him as a coach that was coming here. My job was to film him. And by the time this trip was done, we hung out with him back in East Stroudsburg where he went to school. And he took us to all his favorite places. And it was like we were homies. We were friends. And every time... We would see each other. It wasn't like, hey, how's it going, George? It was like, give me a hug, mate. Like, it was like a different. So it's crazy. It's crazy what holding a camera, where it takes you and where it puts you in the world and and the people you get to meet. Um, 
But what I do, that's what I do. I just film. I film people. I put together big teams now of of a crew of people. Whether I'm I'm producing it, um, you know, or I'm directing it. I got a really solid crew of people. Cody Stato, who's another BMXer who came from Woodward, he has become a DP in the world. Has worked for Nitro Circus. Cody and I work together. Um, sometimes I work under Cody. Sometimes Cody works under me. Um, ultimately, we're all just a big. Like we're we're all equals. We're all out there. Um, our job is to do what we did in BMX. Somebody lands a trick, you high five. Same thing when we go out and film. Our goal is always to have a smile on our faces and high five after each shoot, and make sure that we work for clients who care about us as much as we care about them. Um, and I'm I'm thankful that companies like um, Sheets. Like, just let me go with it. They're like, can you film? And I come up with crazy ideas and they say, yep, works. And sometimes when I'm on a big production, I kind of pinch myself because I'm just like, I still can't believe I do this for a living. But that's what it is. You know, my the company's called Black Sheep Media House. Um, and it's, you know, about seven years old now and constantly growing, learning, meeting new people through it. And, uh, I treat it just like I treat it BMX. It's just work hard, um, crash as many times as I have to to get it right. And I think that's what kind of sets you apart a little bit from, from the rest. You know, most people crash once and they're like, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. But, yeah, that's it. And I think, you know, it's crazy because you were the guy with the camera when I was, when I first moved to Woodward. And I'm like, I always thought you were a filmer, like on top of. I always thought you were going to be like the, you know, like this, that was your world. It was. And I mean, I kind of, I saw other, I, I, get, I came to a crossroads and there were, there were just different directions that I could go in. And that just, I saw other people like you coming up and you were doing stuff that I wasn't. And, and I was just like, well, I kind of, I feel I've ridden this train long enough. I think I'm going to go in this direction now. And, uh, I had a lot of fun. I reminisce about it all the time. I, I kind of miss being able to do what you're saying like travel around travel and film and get paid to go on these adventures and bring my bike and my camera and stuff because i i made videos i mean i did that whole thing i went through all the i i guess the the basic training with that as well like we we saw a lot of these stories that you're telling i'm kind of like yeah i i remember my version of that so yeah that, that was me that was a I was it seems like a lifetime ago now but i still have my camera i still would love to be able to go out and film and and do it again and pick up right back where i left off but it wouldn't be so much has changed i mean you know cameras they're they're changing all the time i i wouldn't be able to get right back into it i'd have to go to school again and it was different but yeah it was that was a fun time but uh yeah so it's it's awesome that you were able to kind of hit that level that that you're at now so um is there anything else that you'd like to talk on? Because I am going to try to pull a fun story out of you before the end here. Because I tried, I tried to at least get what you've, you've given a pretty awesome story of your life up until now. But I know with traveling, I know you and I have had some fun stories. But is there anything else in the in the the history, the the upbringing of of you? to where we're at now that you wanted to touch on before we get to the fun stuff, I guess. I, yeah. You know, I think a lot of times with these conversations, it gets really like, like, like that, like, Oh, what an inspirational story. And, and, you know, 
the hard times and this and that and the other. And I think that's what, you know, like this, that's the story we like to tell people, uh, about how, you know, things, this is what I had to do to get to. But, um, but, you know, as far as my story goes, that's, that's my version of it. You know, somebody else might have a different version of it, but in the world of BMX, there have been some wild times, funny stories, some that we can never talk about. Right. That will go to the grave with us. Um, but, um, I mean, I got so many. I, I, I'll tell you one, th- doing shows um, real quick, um, which was the wildest. I can't believe this. I wish I had a camera back then. Um, I used to do shows with Hell on Wheels. We had two rollerbladers in the team. And we were doing shows in Groton, New York. We shown up one night to Groton, New York. And um, with the two rollerbladers in the team one of them was just a troublemaker he loved it he everywhere he went he wanted to start something with someone he would we were in different towns he would steal people's girlfriends within hours you know of getting there and i'm just like how do you even do it and this kid is just the way he was and so his buddy out of jersey his name is cook he drove out to Groton, New York for the weekend. Oh, you boys are having a great time. I'm going to go meet up with you. We've just been there a few hours. Cook shows up, picks him up from the hotel, and they go somewhere. Okay. We are setting up ramps with Hell on Wheels back then. I think he still has it. Jeff Jones had a semi completely covered with, uh, I think at the times it was Hot Wheels. He was sponsored by Hot Wheels. I mean, this thing is very impressive. So we take it's a, a serious setup. It's I'm a familiar. Ser- oh my god, yeah, serious setup. So we set it. We're setting up quarter pipes, box jumps, and we're like, where the hell is Nick and um, Cook and Gus was the other rollerblader? Nobody knows. A few minutes later, we hear tires screeching. Ah! They pull up, and we're like, "Yo, what's going on?" And they're like, "We gotta go. We gotta go now." What what just happened? We just raced these guys for pink slips, and we won, and now they want to kill us. And I'm like, what are you guys talking? You guys are crazy. You know, they're making stuff up, right? These guys show up. Let us get our car. We need our car now. And I'm just like, what? Is, is this really going on? These guys get out of their car. And Nick was the kind of guy. I remember he, he used to smoke cigarettes. He was smoking a cigarette. He's an Italian kid. He's like... If you don't get out of my face right now, I'm going to punch you right in the face to one of the guys, right? And I'm like, there's a movie happening in front of our eyes. And the guy's like, yeah, let me see you do it. Nick drops his cigarette on the floor. He steps on it, turns it off. He looks up and just uppercuts this guy. This guy's knocked out. All of a sudden, this huge brawl breaks out. I had... um During that time, that's when I had broken my wrist. So I had a cast from my thumb... To pretty much my shoulder, so I'm like, I was a team manager at this time of the of of the team, and I'm like trying to stop this brawl. And Gus is this skinny, tall, looking like a li- he looks kind of like a lizard, kind of like um, it kind of reminded you of Eminem, the rapper, but like really tall, skinny, and he kind of was, you know, kind of um, redheaded, freckly, and and he spoke with a a swag, like he was like a gangster, you know. And then so all of a sudden I see Gus, he's kicking this guy that's on the floor. Guy's knocked out too. Like they, these three guys by themselves knocked out like four guys. 
So then these guys all kind of pick each other up and get the hell out of there, right? And within a few minutes from that happening, um, Jeff is like, dude, what'd you guys do? I'm like, Jeff, we got to get out of here. These guys just had a big brawl. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. He's like, what do you mean? We just got to this town and Jeff is like protecting his truck. Like we just showed up at this town. We're there to do this big fair show. So then we leave the cops show up a few minutes later and they're like, Hey, we heard what happened. Um, we're looking for Nick and that and the other. And so he tells them like, we went back to the hotel. Um, he said, well, make time to watch out. You know, um, we just heard that this, these people want to beat him up or whatever. And I don't know how the cops knew this. Yeah. It's a small town, Groton, New York. The next day we're, I think we're done doing our second show. Um, and we're walking down the street and this kid shows up and he's like, Hey, why'd you, why'd you kick me when I was on the floor yesterday to Nick? And he's like, what? And he's like, you and your friends jumped us yesterday. And, um, pretty much he wanted payback. He wanted to fight him. So Nick's like, let's do this. Then we go in an alleyway, right? We're all in this alleyway. Like it's like, it's like, again, a movie, this big circle of people and Nick and this kid are about to fight. The kid turns his back on Nick and then he pulls out a pair of brass knuckles and Nick's like, no, no, I'm not fighting you. I'm not fighting. The guy's like, what's up now? What's up now? And then Nick just dives into this kid and wraps his arms around the kid's waist. And the kid had perfect access to the top of Nick's head. So he just starts hitting the top of Nick's head. And, uh, we had this kid in the team. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but we used to call him Carlton, like Carlton, the <laughs> fresh, fresh Prince of Bear Lair Carlton, because Carlton he was, he, yeah, but he, he was, he was black, but he was, you know, he, he didn't act like a black kid. <laughs> and, um, and so, so Nick steps back. He's got like four lumps on the top of his head. He's like, he's like, bro, no, you can't. That's unfair. You can't fight like that. And so I try to jump in and then this, like this, the other guys screwed like, no, we said it was a fair. I'm like, this is not a fair fight. You guys have, you know, he's got a, and Nick jumps back in again. He starts to hit this kid and the kid again, brass knuckles to the head. And all of a sudden Carlton picks up this dry rot twig pretty much, right? It's like a piece of steak. I don't even know where he got it from. And he goes, Nick. And Nick looks over to his left. Carlton throws the piece of wood. Nick grabs it. It was like, like we, like we scripted this. He grabs this. The kid steps back. He's like, I'm not fighting you. You got a weapon. After this kid's been hitting Nick with the brass knuckles. And then he's like, what's up now? And then the kid was like, you know what? I don't care. He starts to run towards Nick. Nick does a side step and just whacks him between his nose and his mustache. And the kid just like stops like a fainting goat and falls straight back. Boom. Eyes rolling back. Girlfriend starts crying. Everybody's screaming. And here we go again. We run to the show area. Jeff Jones is like, dude, what's going on? What just happened? I'm like, Jeff, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, Jeff, I think Nick just killed somebody. We got to go. The one thing I did do is I picked up the twig and I threw it in the van and we get to the hotel. Cops come around again to Jeff Jones. Jeff calls me. He's like, hey, cops just showed up. They're looking for Nick. They want to arrest him. They said that you guys jumped 
jumped uh, these guys and that um, he pretty much attacked him with a bat or something like that. And I'm like, Jeff, tell the cops we're going to be there tomorrow morning at the precinct. We show up the next morning. Cops, you know, there's a good cop, bad cop, as usual. We're in there and they're like, yeah, it seems like you guys have been doing some damage in town. The whole nine, you know. And um, and I go, officer, there were... And unfortunately, back then, there were no iPhones. There was none of that. We couldn't film no this proof. stuff. No proof. No proof. Nobody, not even flip phones. Nobody took out their phones and, and tried to record this. So there was no proof of it ever happening. It was his word against Nick's. But they mentioned that we tried to jump them and that they were, you know, nice locals or whatever, and that we were there to make trouble. And the one cop says, well, I don't know if you know this, but the kid that you beat up is the town bully. So there's a lot of people in this town that are really happy about him being beat up. But the kid is pressing charges against you, against Nick. And the cop goes, you can press charges against him. You, you're you both going to get arrested and brought in. And then you're going to have to deal with this stuff. And Nick's like, I don't want to press charges. And I go, officer, I'm so sorry. What kind of weapon did, were we, you know, did he say we were using? He's like, you guys use a bat on him and beat him up. And I told him, I'm like, is it okay if I go in the car and grab the weapon? Cop says, yeah, absolutely. I go in the car. I come out and I go, this is this is the weapon. It was a little twig, dry rot twig. And he's like, how do I know this is the weapon? I'm like, if you look right here, you can find his hair at the tip of the weapon. And he looks and he's like, oh, yeah, it's like skin and and the guy's mustache <laughs> stuck to the to the to this. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, my. So the townspeople. Um, the people that were the family of this bully, um, small town, um, they pretty much every show, we had cops surrounding our show with um, canine, like a whole canine crew because the town people that were family of this kids were claiming that they were going to kill us. So we finished our final show and at the end of the show, we had a complete police escort escorting us out of the town, out of Grant, New York. And um, they claimed that the that they were told that the town's people that knew this kid that were family of his were going to meet us at the edge of the town and they were going to have a surprise for us, you know. So the cops pretty much, um, we had two patrol cars in the front and we had two um, motorcycles in the back of, and then we had the the trailer and the van, pretty much trailing this. So it was like a it was like a parade. We had a nice police parade out of town. How crazy! But that was I would say I was one of those. And there's many stories just like that, especially with this kid, uh, Nick, uh, who's grown up now. Obviously, he's got a family. He's a he's a he's a dad and he's a husband. But back then. Loose cannon. It was a loose cannon. He was just couldn't be told what to do. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was fun to be around I think we him. all have friends like that. that oh, my goodness, yeah. Those stories will come out and you'll just, you'll have a good laugh now. But in the moment, you're just like, who is this kid? Who are you? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, Brian, Brian Cunningham always comes up and I'm not going to start the conversation of him trying to fight Dave Mira, but you know, we've all heard that story and Brian's all, you know, Brian still continues to be one of my good friends. I'm sure I'll bring it up next time I, when I interview him, cause I'm sure it'll happen sooner or later. Oh my God. Yeah. Brian. That's one you got to talk because everybody in the, in the BMX world knows those stories. Like, remember that time Brian tried to fight Dave Mira? Um, but it's, it's so funny. Yeah. His idol. Who he wrote, he had his helmet, everything he owned was like Dave Mirror. So it was just, it was just, but yeah, that was one, I would say that was like a crazy, wild, funny story from the road um, during the BMX years doing shows. I'd say that's a perfect way to end this entire thing. That was great. That was beautiful. Um, Well, all right. Well, I'll let you go out as you like. Is there anything, anything you'd like to add as far as your social media, your website, any way that people can find you and follow you for the, for the tens of listeners we have out there? Uh, Is there anything you'd like to, to add uh, to, before we, before we sign out? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's anyone that needs to follow. I don't even ever post on my personal Instagram anymore. I don't post anything. I stopped two years ago. Um, But, um, but I would just say, like, for anyone listening um, that just got to know a little bit about me is that um, that uh, I'm willing to put in work in anything I ever do. And that I think that's the great thing about BMX. Uh, most BMXers that I know have been have moved on to be successful. And they don't realize that they are because they're so busy doing it. Um, so I think if you start to look around and pay attention, a lot of BMXers that you know are doing some big things in this world. And the thing, the reason is because I feel like they learn to adapt and to crash and burn over and over again and get back up, dust it off and keep going. So I think that's the best lesson that BMX has taught me. And not only that, one of the greatest things is anywhere in the world that you can travel to, if you have a BMX bike and somebody else has a BMX bike, you may not speak the same language, but you will be either best friends or good friends or sleeping on that person's couch at some point or exchanging numbers or they'll take you to a skate park you'll be having dinner with their family they'll be having dinner with like that's the connection that bmx has brought um to my life you know i can attest to that absolutely absolutely well george thank you very much it was a pleasure and thank you guys very much for tuning in one more time you keep listening we'll keep recording them thanks again guys we'll see you soon This episode is brought to you by Colorful, the new game-changing hair dye for pets and animals. Are you sick of your pets looking like any other animal out there in the world? Why settle for ordinary pets when your furry friend can help you express your creativity? Imagine having a checkerboard or a bedazzled puppy dog walking down the street with you. Everyone will look at you and think what a sensible and creative person to paint their pooch like that. You'll be the talk of the town. Just think of all the possibilities. Not only your pets can you paint your farm animals too. Sheeps, cows, chicken, ducks, and turtles. You can even paint all the local neighborhood squirrels so you can start telling them apart from each other and give them fun names. Won't that be a great way to show people how normal you are? Now offering one bottle for the price of two. Colorfoil is only available in your local imagination. No animals were harmed during the testing of this product because this product was only tested on people.